Good morning, everyone. I'm just going to add a couple of uh, quick announcements. Uh, first of all, this coming Friday at Quench, that's our youth group, uh, Shannon Leibold and I are going to be beginning four weeks of teaching on sexuality and gender. So um, I'm sure most of us are aware that our young people are absolutely bombarded uh, in terms of those topics today with a different perspective than what we hold and what the Bible would teach, and so we're wanting to make sure that they understand what the Bible teaches. Uh, but not just that. Um, what does the Bible say about those of us who've struggled with sexual sin? Or how, how do we interact with people who uh, have a different perspective than us on those issues? And so uh, if you are in that age bracket, or if you are a parent of someone in that age bracket, maybe you've uh, kind of graduated from Quench and you're you're still within that age group, please come, even if you haven't been, been coming before. Um, it's going to be a really important time. Uh, I'm going to show you a little picture. This is not for uh, self-sympathy. Uh, this is my hand, I think, on Christmas Day. So I got an infection in my hand. So right after the Christmas Eve service, when I was here playing the guitar, I went to the Listwell Hospital, and within a couple hours, was in and out, had an IV, got uh, antibiotics injected, got to go back Christmas night, Boxing Day evening as well. And uh, <clears throat> not, I'm not saying that to, so that you'll feel sorry for me. Actually, I was so grateful that on Christmas Eve and on Christmas night, there were actually people there working. And it was really interesting to chat with those folks, uh, those nurses and doctors, and to ask them, like, how is it going for you, and what, what's happening? And Christmas Eve, they'd had a crazy day, everybody was exhausted, and um, the nurse said, we are one sick call away from shutting down a merge on Christmas Eve. So why do I say that? Um, many nurses have quit and resigned. And I, I realize that when it comes to COVID, everyone's got their views and their opinions, but the reasons that we're facing stricter measures is because of those folks in those places working hard, yeah, even on holidays, to uh, take care of us. So we have, been, we have had stricter measures placed upon us this week as a church, and we are going to abide by those. We're grateful we can still be here today. I know this is frustrating. Uh, I know we all hope this will be over soon. But uh, we want to do our part, actually, to support those people, those frontline workers. I heard this week, 1% of the people who get this Omicron variant are hospitalized. So we could sit here and say, what's the big deal? The big deal is that when tens of thousands of people get it, our hospitals get overcrowded, and other surgeries that need to happen can't. So we're going to do our part, and um, um, thank you. Thank you for being willing to understand and to participate with us in these things. I hope it's going to be a short time and we can have our small groups back up and running. We're going to take a moment and just pray about all of this and, and thank God for our medical people. We're going to pray for them. Uh, God, it's been uh, a difficult two years. We've never lived through something like this. It's created a lot of frustration, stress, angst, disagreement, disunity. Uh, we all have our opinions about it, Lord. Uh, but we can be thankful that we have health care in this country. We, ha we actually have free health care. We are grateful for those who work hard to uh, take care of us. And we pray for them, Lord, at this time when they are short-staffed, they are exhausted, some are sick, some are quitting. Uh, just be with them, Lord. I pray that we would not add to their uh, stress by our attitudes. Um, that you'd just help us to be grateful, to remember to pray for them, Lord, 
For Christian doctors and nurses, Lord, would you help them to shine brightly? And when we end up interacting with them because we need help, Lord, may we shine brightly the love of Jesus to them. Lord, even as we meet during this time, I pray that you'd protect us from any infection and we wouldn't want that 1% of our church family to end up hospitalized. So we just pray, Lord, that you'd watch over us, protect us. And mostly, Lord, protect our hearts and our attitudes about all this. Help us to be like Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Following Jesus on the discipleship path. So we are back in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, the next verses. We looked at the first three verses last week, and we're going to look a little bit further Uh, this week. So I hope you have your device open, your Bible open, and ready to look at these verses, and I'm grateful that Joyce read these verses for us already. This is our discipleship path, and we are wanting to emphasize this as a very simple tool that we can use both for ourselves to understand the Christian life as well as as we um, understand what it is to be a church and what is our part in the church and what does it mean to grow as a Christian. So last week we looked at the left side of the discipleship path, that dark side we thought and talked about, learned about what it meant to be separated from God. And today we're going to look at the center, that cross in the middle and talk about salvation in Christ. So I know some of us are thinking, I've known about salvation, I went to Sunday school here, I know about this, Uh, but I just want us to be encouraged and challenged to think about the reality of salvation and, 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 and allow God to impact us with the truth of the gospel. So let me just read these verses again, starting in verse four. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's four phrases I want us to see from these verses this morning, which remind us about the wonder of salvation. They all have just two words, and the first one is this, but God. Now, my version doesn't actually put those two words together. Joyce's version did. Many of your versions will. If you have an old King James version, you will have but God at the start of verse 4. Some would say this is the greatest, most wonderful word in all the Bible, but. Because in those first three verses, we read of a predicament, a dire predicament that all of us found ourselves in, separated from God because of our sins, dead in our sins, facing the wrath of God. And then we have this <clears throat> wonderful word, but, but God. First thing that it reminds us of is that God is the one who takes <clears throat> the initiative to save us. It is not our initiative. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people cannot rescue themselves, save themselves, help themselves. We were dead in trespasses and sins, God took the initiative to save us. Now, notice what we read about God. Why did he do this? Why was he a God who would reach out to rebellious sinners? Number one, because of his great 
love. Paul uses these adjectives here. He, he's writing in the Greek language and he's throwing words at the wall here to try and emphasize the truth of God's character to us. So it's not just love, and this is agape love, this is sacrificial love, but he adds the word great to it. It is God's great love for us. Love how he personalizes that. But it's not just that. It's that God is rich in mercy. I think of movies, you know, the pirate movie where they find that treasure trove of gold and jewelry and coins and all of those things. And, and then I picture this is God. If we could somehow lay eyes on his character, on his mercy. Thank you, Wayne. <clears throat> Let's just all look at Wayne for a moment. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <clears throat> if we could somehow see what God's mercy looks like, not just as a concept, but as, as a treasure, as something of greatest value in God's words, in the Bible's words, he is rich in mercy. Then we notice in verse seven, his grace is described and his grace again described as riches, but notice another word is added, his incomparable, the incomparable riches of God's grace. Now, mercy reminds us that when God saves us, he is saving the unworthy, right? That's what mercy is. Mercy is God saving the unworthy. What did we deserve? We, were, we read in verse 3, we were children of wrath. Paul said in one famous verse, the wages or our earnings for sin is death. That's what we rightly deserve because of our rebellious hearts against God. Mercy reminds us that God moves toward those who don't deserve it. In fact, who deserve his punishment, God is merciful. But then grace reminds us that God's disposition to us, in spite of ourselves, is one of goodness and kindness. And we find that word in verse 7 as well. His, don't you love that word? His kindness to us. His kindness to us. God has been so kind to us. And that's why in verse 8, salvation is described as the gift of God. Paul would say in Romans that uh, the wages of sin is death, but another one of those wonderful places where we find that word, the gift of God is eternal life. If it wasn't for God, if he didn't take the initiative, we would be lost forever. We could not help ourselves, save ourselves, but God. But God was willing. But God did take the initiative. So it's the first little phrase I want us to see, but God. The second one is this, made alive. Because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. Here we see the starkness of salvation. And in the middle of the discipleship path, we have this line, which is a cross. It's a, uh, an unambiguous point that we have to move past in order to follow Jesus it is a black and white thing. And so in this passage, salvation is alive from the dead. It's this stark reality that those who were spiritually dead have been resurrected. So the Bible actually helps us with this by several stories that describe a person who was raised from the dead. 
maybe one of the most, well, Jesus, of course, is the most famous person who rose from the dead, but, but there were other stories where just plain old human beings like us who had died <clears throat> were raised from the dead. Maybe most notably in uh, John chapter 11, where Lazarus, the Lord's friend, remember his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus. Our brother Lazarus is sick. Jesus doesn't come. He delays on purpose. And then when he finally comes, Lazarus has died. He's in the grave and his sisters are mourning and wailing. And they say, Jesus, why didn't you come? He would have, he, you could have healed him. And then a story unfolds and we find that Jesus says to them, roll away the stone. Roll away the stone that covers the tomb. And the sisters object, don't do it. There will be a stench. He'd been dead for four days in that warm climate. <clears throat> but they rolled away the stone. Surely they all smelled that awful smell coming from the tomb. And then Jesus calls out to Lazarus and speaks to him and says, Come out! And it's depicted so well in some movies about that event. I love the one where Lazarus comes shuffling out completely wrapped in these strips of cloth, comes shuffling out alive. Uh, those stories help us see the starkness of what has to happen to each of us who are, in our sins, spiritually dead, unresponsive. I mean, even if we faint right now, if you fainted right now, which I hope you won't, it really disrupts the church service, but if you did, you would be helpless to do anything. It would, you would be dependent on the people around you. And Maybe there's a nurse here. Maybe there's a paramedic here and someone's going to call 911. You wouldn't do those things. And imagine how much more when, when you are dead in trespasses and sins. It's only God's initiative who can rescue us and this is what salvation is. The dead person comes alive. Uh, we see these pictures all through Scripture, and there's a number of different ones that are used, and they're all stark. They're all a vivid contrast between what we were apart from Christ and what we are when we find Christ. So here are some examples. Salvation is being transferred from darkness into light. The book of Colossians says that we've been conveyed from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That there is a line there that everyone has to cross. If you're not in the light, you're still in the darkness. Or Jesus taught about the lost being found. He talked about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And this is a stark contrast. We hear stories of people who get lost in the wilderness. They are lost until they are found. And when they're found, they're rescued and their life is spared. Or Scripture says that apart from Jesus, apart from salvation, we are God's enemy. We made ourselves God's enemy because we raised a fist to God. We rejected His rule, His blessing over us. And because of His holiness, He has to stand against us in judgment because of our own attitude, which fails to measure up to His goodness and kindness. So we are His enemies by our own choosing and by God's righteous standard until, Scripture says, in Christ we're reconciled. We're reunited. There's a family reunion between God and us. And then Scripture says we're guilty. Verse 3 says that we are children of God's wrath. <clears throat> until we're justified, which, which is a court word. It's, it's a legal word where the judge says innocent. 
And that's what happens in salvation. The guilty, and how could, this, how could any of us ever be declared justified except for the kindness and grace of God in salvation? The guilty are declared innocent. The cursed are declared blessed. And I'm sure there's many others. Do you see how this is a stark contrast? There is a line here that has to be crossed. This is why uh, all through Scripture we see this call this invitation to be saved. That's the language of the Bible. Be saved. If you're not saved yet, you need to be saved. And until you're saved, you're still lost. You're still in danger. In Christ, those who trust in Christ are made alive. And then here's the next phrase. But God, made alive, And then thirdly, with Christ. Did you notice how this phrase is all through these verses? It says that he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in in our sins. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. I mean, Paul is actually saying it too many times. It's redundant. He raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. He says it again, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed uh, in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Salvation is all about this. It's with Christ. It's a uniting with Christ He's not some person, some entity who's far away, who pushes a button in some distant room and makes us somehow believers. To be a believer is to become completely united with Christ. We are alive with Christ. In fact, even before this, other verses tell us that we have died with Christ. We were crucified with Christ. So he was our substitute on the cross. He was dying for our sins. So when we come to Christ for salvation, God places us there in his mind. He sees us in his mind's eye, dying with Christ, our sins paid for with him, but then raised with Christ. And his very life is our life now. That's why Jesus could say that by faith we can have these springs of living water in our souls That's the life of Jesus making us alive. That's why Jesus could say, abide in me like a branch to a vine. He is the source of life. And in Christ, we've been united with his life. And then we're seated with Christ in verse 6. In salvation, and and get your mind around this, the Bible says that we become co-heirs with Christ. So Jesus is the one true and only Son of God. So everything that belongs to God is the inheritance of Jesus. God gives it all to Jesus Christ. And then he says to those of us who trust in Christ for salvation, who find salvation in Christ, he says, now you get it too. And you're going to sit with Christ at his table, and you're going to sit with Christ on his throne and you're going to rule and reign with Christ and everything that he inherits you inherit there's that little story in the Old Testament of a guy named Mephibosheth remember that guy 
Some of you might not know the story. It's a, kind of a cool story. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. And when uh, the servant who was taking care of this grandson heard that Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed, this servant instinctively knew that Mephibosheth was in trouble. Because in those days, when the king was killed, someone else was going to fill the power vacuum. And when they filled the power vacuum, they were going to kill all of the uh, sons and grandsons of the former king. Remember that story? So the servant grabs Mephibosheth and takes off running, wanting to save his life. Mephibosheth must have been a big kid because she couldn't hold him. And she fell down. And as she fell down, she fell on top of him. And his leg became permanently damaged and crippled. So not only was Mephibosheth the grandson of the dead king, now he's a cripple, which in that culture just drops you another few rungs. Who was the next king after Saul? Well, it was David. And David so loved Saul's son Jonathan and so respected the kingship of Saul that when he came into power, he said, are there any sons or grandsons of Saul left? And immediately people thought, oh, here we go. David's going to kill them all. And, he, and they said, there's only one. He's crippled, this guy named Mephibosheth. David says, bring him. Mephibosheth comes with fear and trembling. He thinks his life is about to end. David says to Mephibosheth, from now on, you eat with me. You sit at my table. You live in my, you live in my palace. Oh, and all of the land that used to belong to Saul and Jonathan, I restore to you. I'm going to give you servants who are going to work that land, who are, going to, who, are going to, who are going to farm that land and bring produce from that land. It's going to be all yours. And in the meantime, you sit here with me. That is just a small, a small glimpse of what it means to be saved in Christ, that we are seated with him. We become his people. We sit with him at that royal table. We sit with him on his royal throne. <clears throat> this is what Christ has done. And all of this, of course, is in Christ. Paul uses this phrase over and over, and it reminds me of another story of the Bible, the story of Noah and the ark, and how Noah had to build this ark of safety, and when the storms and the floods came, they could go into the ark, and God would shut the door, and it was safe. Until the floods left, they were safe in the ark. And what does Paul say to us? You are safe, and only safe, in Christ. And by faith, it's not just that we join a religion. It's not that we've joined some church. It's that by faith through salvation, we are so united with Christ that we are actually in Christ and we are safe in Christ and he is our rock and our ark of refuge with Christ. This is what it means to be saved. It's but God. It's his initiative. It's, it's, uh, it's made alive. It's being brought back to, to spiritual life, and it's with Christ. And then one more little phrase that we need to see in verse 8, and that is that we are saved through faith. We've seen salvation as this line, this contrast, this starkness. There's nothing ambiguous about it. You're either out or you're in. And now we see that salvation, the, the human response that God requires of us, not as a work that earns us Salvation, but as a kind of opening of our hearts to receive it, is called faith. Now, the problem for us is that we use faith in all kinds of ways in our culture. People still use faith. You go to a Toronto Maple Leaf game, 
someone will hold up a sign saying, I still have faith. I still believe. Uh, and which is maybe misplaced faith. Sorry, Wayne. He's shaking his finger at me there. <clears throat> but we use that phrase. Or, or people talk about how if we just believe, you know, we, there's, some, there's positive energy that comes from just, just having faith. But what does the Bible mean? When it uses the word faith, did you see it there in verse 8? Many of you have memorized this verse. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. The Bible describes faith in a number of ways. Sometimes it uses the word believe or belief. The Bible often uses the word repentance. Uh, I would say not as necessarily as something that we add to faith, but as an expression of our faith to repent is to agree with what God says about us, that we have rebelled against him, that we've sinned against him. To repent is to agree with God, to turn from our sin, to demonstrate a remorseful heart, to, to turn and go in a new direction. To repent is to turn away from my old life, my old sin, and to turn to Christ to follow him. That is an expression of faith. I like to use the word trust as really the better word to understand faith in our English language. The biblical concept of faith is better understood in English with the word trust. So we're saved through faith. Notice verse 9 says it's not by works. It's not a religious duty or deed. It's not an affiliation. I've heard way too many people in my life when the topic of spirituality was, uh, was approached who said to me, well, I am, and then they filled in a religion or a denomination or a church. I am whatever. And clearly they're, they're saying, my security is here. I'm confident that God will accept me because of this affiliation with this religion or this church or this person. But faith strips all of that away. It's, it says it's not by some religious deed. It's not by a religious affiliation. It's, it says you cannot boast. You can't do what so many of those people have done and what so many others do when they say, well, I believe my good deeds, yeah, I, I know I've sinned, but my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's, that's, that's boasting. I am a good person. I have done so much good that any bad I might have done will certainly be out. That's boasting. That's what so many people say if they believe in God and they believe in an eternity. They boast. And they say, I think I'm okay. That's not faith. It's not by works. It's not a boast. It's trust. Some people have described salvation in this way, where that cross in the middle of the discipleship path can be viewed as a kind of bridge between the separated from God and that reunited with God on the other side. The only way to cross that great chasm is through the bridge of Christ or the bridge of salvation. That chasm is deep. It is bottomless. It leads to an eternity in hell facing the wrath of God. You cannot jump across this chasm. You cannot work uh, or build something to cross this chasm. Uh, you, you, you can't count on any person to throw you a rope from the other side. There's only one way across the chasm of sin, and that is Jesus Christ and the cross. 
But there's a thing about bridges that helps us understand what trust is. So let me show you this picture. When I grew up in Marathon, uh, Kitty Corner, almost right across from our house, was a street, a crescent. And it was, the name of the crescent was Van Horn. Uh, I assumed that was a person. I didn't know who it was until many years later when I read a story about a guy named Cornelius Van Horn. Any of you heard of Cornelius Van Horn? Come on. Oh, I'm, I'm going to educate you today about <coughs> Cornelius Van Horn. Cornelius Van Horn was charged with the task by the Canadian government in the early 1880s to complete a rail line that spanned all the way across Canada from sea to sea. There were already uh, rail lines in central Canada, but there was no railway through northern Ontario, like in Marathon, where I used to live, and there certainly was no rail line through the Rocky Mountains. So Cornelius Van Horn took on this task, and over the course, it was less than a decade, they completed this. So why did they call that street Van Horn and Marathon? It was because he oversaw the work in rugged northern Ontario. In fact, we used to go fishing down the shore of Lake Superior. We'd pull off Highway 17 to this area where you could park by the train tracks. We'd get on the train tracks. We'd walk down uh, probably a mile. We went through a, a uh, cave, like a, what do you call it? A tunnel through the rock. This is northern Ontario. We went through quickly in case the train came and we fished on the other side of that tunnel. But even worse than Northern Ontario was the Rocky Mountains. Here is a picture of what's called the Mountain Creek Bridge. Mountain Creek is in the bottom of that. <clears throat> this is called a trestle bridge. Don't I sound smart? I just love to sound smart <clears throat> because I'm not. But this is a trestle bridge, which means it's built from timbers. And Cornelius Van Horn is in charge of this. He's trying to complete the railway through the Rocky Mountains. And this bridge is completed. What do you do when a bridge is completed? Look at look how long this bridge is. Look at this span. They didn't have equipment or electronics or engineering means of testing a bridge other than one way. And what was the one way? You drive a train across. So you load up a train. You can see this train here. Uh, it appears to have a number of cars. The men are standing on these cars. They're loaded with something that looks heavy. You've got the engine. You've got the coal car behind it. It is heaped up and loaded. So they bring this heavy train, and it's going to test the Mountain Creek Bridge, except that the engineer looks at the bridge. He says, I'm not doing it. No way. Find somebody else. Take somebody else's train. I'm not going. So the train is parked on the side of the Mountain Creek Bridge. And Van Horn is eager to get this finished. And to link up the track from sea to sea, he's got to get this piece of track in action. It's got to be operational, and it can't be operational till it's tested. So he literally comes out to the Mountain Creek Bridge. And he says to the engineer, take the train across. The engineer says, I ain't doing it. I don't know if he said ain't. <clears throat> Van Horn says, okay, get out. Get out of your train. I'll take it across. The engineer was surprised. I mean, Van Horn was powerful. He was working in, in some of the highest levels of government. He had money. He was rich in those days. He <clears throat> the engineer says, really? 
He says, if you go, I'll go. Van Horn says, great, get in. I'll pay for your funeral. <laughs> and they take the train across. There was no funeral. The bridge hell. That is a beautiful picture of what biblical faith is. See, we use the word faith like the guy who stands on the side of the bridge, not like the engineer even, but some guy who's out there who says, that is impressive. The guy who bets the person beside him and says, I bet you, in those days, a nickel. This bridge will hold. I'll bet you a dollar. And they really believed it would hold. That's not faith. You can be impressed by it. You can study it. But until you get in the train and cross the bridge, you have not believed. And that's why this is a crucial message. Because I suspect that within this room, there are people who've spent a lifetime or maybe years sitting beside the bridge and you've come and sat in these pews and you've heard people talk about the bridge and you've sung about the bridge and you agree and you like it and you would argue for it but you've never gotten in the train. You've never set the weight of your life on the bridge that is Jesus and the cross. So when the Bible says it's not of works, it's by faith, it's talking about this kind of faith. It's talking about the faith that gets out on the bridge that says, I, Jesus, I trust you with my life. Jesus, I trust you with all of my past and all of my sin. I trust you and I will lay the weight of my life upon you and you alone. This is another way of thinking of it. The white flag of surrender. You can tell I'm a bit of a history buff and I like to, I like to watch uh, documentaries about history and about war and, and there's so many amazing stories that make for great sermon illustrations. <clears throat> but think of it, those of you who studied the history of war, the history of the white flag, the history of surrender. Imagine the gut-wrenching decision that faced many soldiers throughout the centuries since this tactic was used of the white flag. Knowing that when they raised the white flag, they only partly, they only partly knew that they would survive. Because the, their life would be spared on that day, but they'd go into a POW camp where there was no guarantees. No guarantees about health care. No guarantees about your next meal. No guarantees that some guard might not just snuff out your life on a whim. It was a scary thing to surrender to an enemy who did not love you, who showed no mercy, who had no grace. But in Christianity, to believe is to raise a white flag to God, who scripture says has a great love for you. You raise a white flag to God, who scripture says his mercy is rich. His grace is incomparably rich. You surrender to a God who doesn't seek your harm, but seeks to save and forgive 
and redeem and wash and even seat you at his own feast. Surrendering is a beautiful picture of what it means to trust in God. We wave a white flag. We surrender our lives. But I fear that in a church like Wallenstein, we have people who have not surrendered, who have refused to wave the white flag. You agree. You like the story. You like the songs. You would argue that it's true. But you personally have not raised a white flag to God. You have not surrendered your life. You have not stepped out onto the bridge that is Christ. And the discipleship path reminds us that until you do, you are still separated. You might be searching. You might, you might even be applauding. But until you surrender to Christ, you're still on the dark side. And Jesus gave his life to bring us over from darkness into light. And how did he do that? He built a bridge and there was timber and there were nails and spikes that were required for this bridge of salvation to be built to cross this chasm, not of some small creek in British Columbia, but this vast, endless chasm between God and sinners and Jesus. And Jesus alone could build a bridge through his own death on the cross. Do you believe that? Years ago, I got to speak to, to a, a youth group on a weekend retreat. And as I talked with them about faith, I actually brought the white flag, found an old white towel and nailed it to a stick. And, <clears throat> and as we finished our last message, I said to the young people, okay, we're passing the flag around and everyone's going to take hold of it, everyone. And as you hold that flag for two seconds, five seconds, whatever it is, you, I want you to reckon with your in your own mind with God as to whether you have truly surrendered. Maybe for some of you, you will hold that flag and for the first time you will surrender to God. Some of you will pass it on knowing you have not. I didn't bring the flag today, but I want you to ask yourself the question. Have you surrendered? Jesus suffered on the cross to bring you, to restore you to God. It was not a meaningless act. It was not a senseless act. He knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing. He did it for you. And so we're going to take communion. And as we have Pastor Wayne come and give thanks, lead us through communion, I want you to be asking this question. Have you surrendered? Have you believed?